Welcome to Desperately Seeking the 80s. I am Meg. I am Jessica. And Meg and I have been friends since 1982. We got through middle school and high school together here in New York City, where we still live. And where we are now podcasting about New York City in the 80s. I focus on Rip from the Headlines. And I do pop culture. And before we get started, Jessica, yes. I've got a few little updates. I'm excited. I thought you would enjoy the fact that um, I was talking to Alice, my daughter, mm -hmm. about celebrity kids, mm -hmm. wondering if they had changed at all in you know the last generation. And she mentioned something called Nepo aesthetic. Oh my God, this sounds so navel gazing. I love it already. What is it? Basically, these children of celebrities dress super well because their parents have been given all these wonderful clothes for free. And so they've got great style. Well, Alice is Nepo aesthetic. <laughs> Is she? She's not a daughter of a celebrity. Yeah, but she didn't she benefit from the Sandra Dorfman Upper East Side collection? It's a little different. <laughs> okay. I, I, feel, I feel like we're very famous. I okay. think, you know, we're, we're well known on York Avenue. <laughs> the Dorfmans of York Avenue, you say? All right. Um, and... Yes. I have another update mm -hmm. that uh, my friend from Fleming sent me who okay. did a bit of a deep dive on gangs in the 80s in New York and came up with a website that described the 84th Street Bombers of Yorkville. They were actually called the 84th Street Bombers. You don't say. Yeah. Mid-70s to mid-80s, Yorkville section were a mixed-race crew of Irish, German, Hungarian, Italian, and Puerto Ricans. Turf ran from 83rd Street to 85th Street on both 1st and 2nd Avenues, frequented Fresca's Pizzeria on 83rd and 1st, Enzo's Pizzeria on 85th and 2nd, the Minstrel Boy Pub on 85th Street... <laughs> Brady's Pub on 82nd Street and the Clan Den Pub on 86th Street. Colors were black and yellow, and they had sweatshirts and football jerseys with their name on the chest. Club dissolved over a two or so year period between 1983 and 1985, where two homicides <gasps> were committed by two different core members around the same time, and several of the other core members joined the military. <gasps> Oh, my God. Please tell me the names. Who? I, I, I don't know them. After the loss of approximately nine main members to both the military and prison, the few remaining members simply disbanded. Good God. Isn't that wild? That is wild. We're just learning more and more. Someday we're going to be able to interview an actual member. Oh, my God. All right. You ready? <laughs> you ready? <laughs> With that evil voice and grin, I don't this know. Is a, this is a crazy, crazy story I'm about to tell you. All right. So, Jessica, on occasion, we have referenced Glee Club. <laughs> and I am going to ask you, your engagement question is, why did we at Nightingale Bamford call Glee Club Glee Cult? Because we had a Miss Jean Brody type as our choral conductor. I, I know you get upset when I name names. Should I, should I refrain? Probably, yeah. <laughs> okay. Mrs. R. Has that. Um, yeah, she was, she was wildly charismatic and also scary. 
and uh, we did anything she told us to. Partly because she was a Miss Jean Brody, and partly because Glee Club counted towards college, you know, like extracurricular credits. So, but it was an intense experience. It was insane. She had us rehearsing like five days a week and was really invested in these these competitions that she put us in. I remember she had her mother write an original song. Her mother is like a famous composer yeah. and and had her write a song. And like we were all terrified that we were going to fuck it up. Yeah. I remember vividly why it was Glee Cult. Right. Well. Can you tell I'm scarred? <laughs> <laughs> My sources for this story are... The East Hampton Star Magazine by Spencer L. Schneider, culteducation.com, New York Post articles from this year, and my mother. <gasps> okay, I'm ready. Very excited. On January 22nd, 2021, Sharon Gans died from COVID at the age of 85 in her $8 million apartment in the Plaza Hotel. She grew up in the Bronx starred in the 1972 film version of Slaughterhouse-Five, produced the award-winning documentary Artists and Orphans, A True Drama, and was the charismatic and abusive leader of the New York City-based cult, the Odyssey Study Group. Okay. At the time of her death, the Odyssey Study Group was raking in $1.2 million a year from member fees alone. And that was in cash. Is this... Study group or steady group? Study. Study. Okay. Remember Hare Krishna's in the airport? Of course. And the Dianetics people in the subway asking if you wanted to take a stress test. Do you remember that stuff? (laughs) Yes. Okay. Well, OSG recruits their members differently. According to Spencer Schneider, who was in the cult for 23 years, the wealthy professionals who are targeted are carefully chosen and gradually indoctrinated and ultimately sworn to secrecy. In 1989, Spencer was a 29-year-old corporate lawyer working on Park Avenue. His father had recently passed away. He was watching his friends get married and have children, and he was working 60-hour weeks. He was in a quarter-life crisis. He played in a blues band occasionally, in a dive bar in Tribeca, and became friendly with Malcolm, the bartender. Malcolm, an Ivy League graduate, took Spencer for drinks at Pete's Tavern and told him he was a member of a, quote, esoteric school, which met a couple nights a week and had changed his life. Spencer was skeptical, but Malcolm insisted that, while it was unusual, the group was filled with wonderful teachers and people who, like Spencer, were interested in ideas and philosophy and community. The first month was free, and after that it was only $300 a month. Spencer decided to check it out, mostly because he liked Malcolm and was eager for a community. The organization was shrouded in secrecy. Malcolm wouldn't even tell him the address of the meeting. He insisted on escorting him to the studio on Broadway and Franklin above a wholesale fabric store. Can you picture it? Vividly. There were 40 people in the loft that night, all looking very much like himself. And Sharon Gans, then in her 50s, with bright orange-red hair, began to teach a class on the fourth way. 
which is a tradition defined by the philosophy of George Ivanovich Gurchev, an Armenian-Russian guru, and written about by Pyotr Demianovich Uspensky. This is every flag, <laughs> red and otherwise, right. flying. So Gurchev's basic teaching is that people live in a waking sleep, and that transcendence from this sleeping state requires a specific inner work. Which includes paying Sharon $300. Just for starters, yes. <sighs> okay. Over the next few months, a guy named David called Spencer every day. At work, at home, wherever he was on vacation, David never told Spencer anything about himself, not even his last name, but Spencer unloaded everything onto David. He told David his fears, his insecurities, his triumphs, the whole deal. And Spencer came to really rely on David emotionally. But Spencer didn't know that David was sharing all these confidences with Sharon. Spencer also didn't know that Sharon had fled San Francisco in 1979 after members of their theater group, the Theater of All Possibilities, accused Sharon and her playwright husband, Alex Horn, of verbal and sexual abuse, beatings, and fraud. According to the Cult Education Institute, mm -hmm. quote, the theater of all possibilities held classes, recruited heavily, and used the group as a vehicle for producing Alex Horn's plays, which often starred Ms. Gans. Members provided free labor and were convinced to do so was a privilege. The Horn students worked on productions, acted in them, sold tickets on the streets, built sets, prepared and served dinners, and provided whatever they could. According to some members, Alex Horn abused his students, both physically and verbally, and Sharon Gans was known to berate members to keep them in line. <sighs> These people exhaust me. Right. I mean, the interesting thing is, having belonged to a number of theater organizations and going to theater grad school, it, it's, it's not a... I, you know, you it's know, not far off. <laughs> look, that's that isn't that the treachery of the arts that you're forced to become vulnerable, right? right? Mm -hmm. For your art. Mm -hmm. hmm. And then these people, yeah, but they did add this extra layer of paying, paying, and also this idea of inner work. Yes, I think. After fleeing the scandals in San Francisco, Sharon and Alex regrouped in New York in 1980. This time, they had a very different business model, focusing on ensnaring Manhattan professionals and keeping the organization top secret. So no more artists, no more selling tickets to theater. Now we're going to have classes in studios all around the city that isn't and no and publicity. And bones it. Yeah. They even changed the name frequently to avoid being tracked down. Some of the group's many names, The Work, School, Good Omen, Every Man, Hudson Valley Artists Foundation, New York Playwrights Association, and Gurdjieff Upensky. Remember that one. Okay. Spencer says, quote, we were invisible. We had to be. We took an oath of absolute secrecy. We never even told our immediate families who we were. We were your accountants, 
money managers, lawyers, executive recruiters, doctors. We owned your child's private school and sold you your brownstone. But you'd never guess our secret lives, how we lived in a kind of silent terror and fervor. There were hundreds of us. They met twice a week and attended retreats, but never acknowledged fellow members outside of those meetings. The classes and retreats added up to a minimum of $13,000 a year per member. Also, once you achieved a certain rank, what do you think you were expected to do? Recruit. Yes. Mm. Which can take up to 20 hours a week. So, so much for seeing any family and friends. So now you're isolated. I was just going to say that's the next step in the in the cult, isolate. The ideal recruit was a professional with influence and money, but immediately disqualified as candidates were black people, <gasps> gay people, unless they were willing to convert, journalists, or anyone with a close connection to law enforcement, the military, or intelligence services. I'm actually speechless. Like I, I, I need a minute to process that. It's, it's both practical and incredibly socially horrifying. Yes, but practical. I mean, the the, the police. Yeah, the police and the military and, the and intelligence services right, and the right. journalists. Yeah, yeah. The the black people and the gay people. I she just is a horrible person. She's just an asshole. <laughs> just that's that's yeah. that's a separate plain and issue. simple. Yes. What do you think many New Yorkers would say is their most valued asset? Time and uh, valued asset. Connections and something else that strength, our fortitude. Real estate. Everything that you mentioned is incredibly valuable. But also because we are in a very confined area. There's nowhere to go. Literally, there's nowhere to go but up. Yes. And real estate is very valued in yes. this city in particular, and interesting also in San Francisco. But anyway, um, Sharon made millions by flipping properties in the city and upstate, using members as unpaid labor. Members were indoctrinated to believe that one of the best ways to evolve was to engage in hard physical labor for the benefit of school. And according to the Post, Sharon was extremely controlling of her students' personal lives, especially about sex and children. (sighs) She ordered one married man to find a young girl to jog with and get oral sex. And and instructed a married family woman to... At the same time. I know. I couldn't picture it. That's a a great look on going around the reservoir. (laughs) (laughs) okay um and instructed a married family woman to go to italy stand at the fountain wait for a man have an affair so she was arranging the marriages and then arranging the breakups she ordered women to give their babies to other members to raise what (laughs) Uh uh-huh and and these lunatics did it yeah Mm. and to me this sounds like she kind of Obviously, she gets off on manipulating people, but also she's trying to weaken the relationships and family bonds. No, it's all part of the isolation. So that she's the only person that they trust. Yeah. Like, we don't want a happily married couple. We want a couple that doesn't trust each other. Well, and and people who are raising a child don't have time for this nonsense. 
Often in cults, the leaders try to redefine morality and ethics. Mm. Mm. So you're no longer trusting your gut. Mm. So yeah, those red flags, like you no longer have any red flags. Moral relativism. Mm. And uh, remember the initial philosophy was about everyone being asleep. In other words, everyone is blind to what's actually like the happening. Matrix. So she's going to tell you what is actually happening. She's Neo. Actually, oh, oh. she's Lawrence Fishburne, but whatever. Go ahead. Right. And so, you know, now your head is just all turned around and you don't trust your instincts. Mm -hmm. And you follow the often very arbitrary edicts of this one person. In 1986, psychiatrist Louis, probably Louis West or Louis West. L-O-U-I-S. Yes. Let's say I'm Louis. go with Louis. Yeah. And Michael Langone. As in Langone? I, I assume. Interesting. Defined a cult as, quote, this is in 1986. I think it's interesting that that's when they define cults. A group or movement exhibiting a great or excessive devotion or dedication to some person, idea, or thing, and employing unethically manipulative techniques of persuasion and control designed to advance the goals of the group's leaders to the actual or possible detriment of members, their families, or the community. Mm -hmm. Interesting, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, sounds spot on to me. Right. According to culteducation.com, Gann's group is brilliant at the three Ds of cultic manipulation, deception by recruiting under the false pretense of enlightenment, dependency by isolating, guilting, and punishing members and denigrating critical thinking, members become dependent on compliance-oriented expressions of love and support. I thought that one was very, that interesting. Is very interesting. And the last D, dread of being abandoned by the group if you fuck up. Spencer said he witnessed countless incidents of members being brutally berated only to be love-bombed when they were at their weakest. What finally pushed Spencer to break from the group? A fairly innocuous incident. Quote, it was a common event, Sharon treating a woman like dirt. This time it was Connie, one of the kindest people I knew. During class one evening, Sharon lashed out at Connie for no apparent reason, and it continued for hours. Then my classmates piled on, insulting and degrading this fine woman who was reduced to tears and begged in vain for forgiveness. I sat there in the front row with my arms crossed and a frown on my face. Sharon saw me and said that I needed to snap out of my negativity. I never came back to class again. And although Sharon Gans passed away last year, the Odyssey study group, undoubtedly under a fresh moniker, is still thriving under new leadership. Now, you may ask why my mother... Oh, yes! ...is a source for this story. Was she recruited? Okay. While I was doing the research for this, I kept having this sort of nagging feeling, like it sounded kind of familiar. I don't know why. Like, honestly, it was just like this weird feeling. And so I texted my mom last night... We lived in Greece for a year mm -hmm. in 1980. Mm -hmm. We lived in Greece and we rented out our townhouse to this couple from Texas. And the couple from Texas asked before they moved in, they were going to be there for a whole year. They asked if they could bring their manservant and their maid. 
And we were like, or sorry, not me. I was a child. My parents were like, sure, whatever you want. Couple from Texas. And my Aunt Laura would come and drop in, you know, once a month just to see how things were going, but they would never let her into the house. <laughs> now, Henriette Klein lived across the street from us, <laughs> and she could see into the windows. <gasps> Fabulous. <laughs> And she saw these naked men dancing. And she sent word, I I think there's more than just like this Texas couple and their like manservant. <laughs> Something weird is going on. When we got back, my mother said everything was perfectly in place. It was like we had never left. Oh, this is another thing I forgot she said. Um, they asked if they could paint the banister. White. The townhouse was built in 1880. The idea that you would paint the wooden banister white was insane. Insane. But I think maybe they were just trying to come up with work for these people to do. What can they do? Because it's so important to them that they have hard labor. So obviously, my mother said, no, you can't paint the banister. But she comes in, everything is exactly how we left it. And then she opens up the refrigerator and there were 15 bottles of salad dressing and each one had a name of a different person on it. And the toilet seats in the bathrooms had grooves in them. That's how many butts had sat on those toilet seats. Wait, I Think about that for a second. Dear listeners, my jaw is hanging down. I'm frozen. Wait, in one year? In one They year. wore away a toilet seat? Upstairs and downstairs. And my mother found a business card that said Gurdjieff Upinski Institute and gave our address. <gasps> oh, my God. We were the center. Oh, my. Sharon Gans came to New York in 1980, Jessica. And lived in your house? Yes. That was Sharon and we, Alex? We were the center. Oh, my <laughs> God. Well, that explains a lot. <laughs> How crazy is that? Oh, wait. I have to know what the salad dressing is about. There are just so many people there, and I guess they all have their particular taste in salad dressing. I have no idea. Oh, I was imagining like 15 identical bottles of wishbone Italian <laughs> with people's names on them. I don't know. I don't know. I and didn't I like, ask that her if they were. sounds like abuse. <laughs> I don't know if they were different kinds of salad dressing or what the deal was, but wow, clearly Meg. it's not just like a couple That's... living in the house fucking insane right? wait so so henrietta let's go back to Henrietta. Yeah. she's like um who was it on bewitched who was the next door exactly so always they, looking in the window with, yeah like parting the curtains slowly and one giant like telescope coming out through the curtains to look and she saw people dancing around naked naked men dancing naked men dancing look you know i love you and you yeah. know I hold you in the highest esteem. Yes. But this story really bumps you guys up a notch. <laughs> <laughs> On what scale? <laughs> the I'm interested, intrigued, and that much more roped into your lives scale. I have to talk to your mother about this. It's so crazy. And what what it made me think of is like the more that we do these stories, the more we're finding out, we're discovering 
things about our own childhood. <laughs> We're uncovering <laughs> mysteries. Do we want to go further or should we stop? I want to know every dirty detail of every nightmare that happened. I want to know it all. I mean, what on earth? Come on, you were the center. Wow. What would your mom do if we snuck in and just put 15 bottles of salad dressing in the fridge? <laughs> like Judy, Leonard, Paolo. I mean, I mean, think of the pranks that we could start pulling on you. I'm sorry, Bebby. I know you're listening, but that's pure comedy. And also like discovering that they recruited professionals I'm thinking that the real estate agent was a member of this cult. Well, that's the thing about cults, isn't it? And why I think it's one of the reasons that Scientology also gets people so anxious is they're not in a tent in the middle of a cornfield, you know, like diddling each other or whatever they do. They're, they walk amongst us. Yeah. And you just don't know. And so... Well, with, that's what Spencer is definitely telling right, us. Right. So with the work... Um, or whatever they were calling themselves at any given moment, like if they're if they were so morally blank at that point, like what were they really doing in their their interactions with whoever? Sharon definitely seemed to be all about manipulation. Sharon was all about Sharon and about twisting other people's heads around. Like right, that, which is, which is the really power of Sharon. Her. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Like, of course, that's... And making money. Well, everyone needs a hustle. I'm not against her for the hustle. I'm against her for the mind games. Have you ever been, like, invited to a group? Yes. Like I, I shared a lot of office spaces throughout the years, and some of them were great, and some were cuckoo bananas. And there was a guy who was a photographer, and he was everything out of central casting of like, you know, photographer who thinks he's super cool in New York. His hair was always slicked back and he was in Italian loafers and jeans and, you know, like name dropping so hard. He was one of like, you know, the type. Yeah. We had a, like a passing nice relationship because we had to share a space, okay. but I, I was not his pal. Okay. And his name was Tony. And one day he was like, let's have lunch. Mm -hmm. And I was like, maybe he wants me as a model. <laughs> no, he wanted me to join Landmark. Okay. And, and Landmark is like Scientology what no, is, or the Land secret. Yeah. Okay. But you know, and the thing is, yes, I'm I have very, heard about this. I'm very, I have LA fence. friends who have run into this. I have, I'm on the fence because there are two people in my life, both men, who really feel that their lives were turned around by Landmark. And I've seen the before and after. And it's true. They, but they were not lifers. Like okay. they did like a year or two and then out. But with that said, and that's my caveat to these two people I care about very deeply, I was like, Tony, this is at the table, Tony, I'm never joining your cult. Forget it. Yeah. I'm, I think I said, like, I'm not a joiner. And that was it. 
or so I thought. He tried two more times. Wow. And I was like, who so did was he just on you? a bad judge of character? Because you just would never have done that. Or do you think he had pressure from someone else? He had pressure. He had a quota. Or did he see something in you that you don't know about yourself? I'm quite sure that he thought he saw something, but he thought wrong. Yeah. Because I was pretty consistent in, you know, Tony, not for me. Yeah. My my resentment of authority figures has kept me kind of clear of that. I, well, kind you of do thing. know that that's one of the principal building blocks of our friendship <laughs> is that we are both highly skeptical of anyone in control. No uh, one's going to be a boss of me. Yeah. You're not the boss of me. No cults. No cults. Last week was no drugs. This week, no cults. Yes. I mean, these are like, by the way, these are classic late 70s, early 80s PSA topics, mm-hmm. you know, cults and, and drugs. Definitely. I mean, do you remember deprogrammers were a huge thing? I mean, talk about an opportunity business. Mm. All of these people who are like, I used to be in a cult and I'm going to get your daughter out of this cult and I'm going to put her in a place plastic bag. It was basically the Matthew Broderick plastic bag plan, <laughs> but, you know, call back, but to get people out of cults. And then like you, invariably an unmarked blue van was involved <laughs> and they'd throw some unsuspecting culty kid in, in the van right. and risk that kid away until their parents were like, come back, Jeff, you know, but that was like a thing. Yes. That was a the thing. There were, there were, there were after school specials about it, like the drugs, like Helen Hunt flying out the window. You know that. The PCP after school special. Helen Hunt jumped out a window. Helen Hunt plays a girl who's like a really straight laced girl and her super hot boyfriend is like, here, just try it once. And she delicately sniffs some powder (laughs) off his pinky and immediately do not pass go. Do not collect your 200 or 100 bucks. She goes ranting and raving around the classroom and then flies out through the glass. Like she doesn't open the window. She goes straight out and lands in the parking lot. And I think that the character was a, she didn't even have the good luck to die. I think she was a vegetable Uh, after that. (laughs) And, you know, and like her younger brother was like, man, I got to get that boyfriend of her. Mm." And it, it was a classic. You've never seen this? It sounds familiar, but no. I don't have a visual. I have a feeling look that it this up. is... No, no. I just have a feeling that this is the part of the podcast where there's going to be a lot of engagement in social media <laughs> because there's this great <laughs> video clip, and I'm sure it's a GIF, GIF, whatever, of Helen Hunt, and they're shooting from underneath, and she's suspended <laughs> midair with all of this broken glass around her. And she's wearing bell bottoms and has these big, chunky heeled platform boots and is like flailing as she goes through the window. I will look it up. Absolutely. I'll, I'll send it to you. The moment we're finished with this, we have right. to look at it. So any closing words about Glee Club in this context? I actually am really proud that I got kicked out of Glee Club. You got kicked out? For insubordination. Did I know that? You came back. I came back because my parents yelled at me. (laughs) They were like, this is for college. You need an after school activity. This is your only out of the cult. (laughs) Yeah, you know that in brief. And if our buddy Sasha is listening, Sasha, this one's for you. 
we, you know, this one, this is the one where Just I was a mean girl and I like, saw, so this girl who was a kind of a nerd in Glee Club said something that was a malapropism of some kind and everybody giggled and got over it. And Sasha and I couldn't stop laughing and we were quaking like you're not supposed to laugh in church kind of quaking. We could not stop. We were told, take a breather, go to the you know bathroom or something. We went we're in the stalls next to each other and Mrs. R and we're like that bitch, that oh, fucking bitch. No. She's such an asshole. I hate her. Blah, blah, blah. And then Sasha goes in for the kill with she's so fat. <laughs> and so she goes on about like the size of this woman and I'm pounding on the wall between the stalls because I can see that Mrs. R is standing in the doorway. And now I'm laughing trying to compose myself we walk out of the stalls start washing our hands realize she's there look at each other and absolutely lose it laughing and so then she's like come here and talk to me and we're standing there just shaking in front of her she said i don't think you really want to be in glee club and i don't think that glee club really wants you and that was the day that we left and Sasha taught me how to smoke <laughs> on the stoop. So how did you come back? I had to beg her. My parents made me beg. Did Sasha come back? I think she, her parents got mad at her for the same reason. <laughs> I mean, I remember we were all senior no, we year. Were all, we were senior all year. We were all club. together. Yeah. We, we were allowed. I mean, like we had to write an apology letter and like really scrape the bottom of the barrel of our our emotional lives. And I know that there are certain people who may be listening to this podcast who went to school with us who think she's top notch. Yes, she's very adored. Well, you're wrong. Oh, Jessica. <laughs> wrong again. No, no, bad lady. Bad, bad. I can't leave this in. What are you talking about? Don't you censor me. Don't you take out my honest opinion. No way. Mm -mm. Okay. Nope. Because right. this is not mean girling. This is truth telling. Okay. Power to the people. <laughs> I'm sorry. That was such a long segment. I loved it. Okay. And I deeply thank you for the opportunity to unload all of that emotion that I had pent up about Glee Club. Okay. <laughs> so I did set you. you up for that. Yes, you did. So I will be brief. Okay. Because I don't want to take a second away from your segment today. <laughs> um, but, you know, your cousin gave us some suggestions oh, right. about what he'd like to hear us talk about. Yeah, Taylor. And, yes, Taylor. And he um, made a suggestion that really resonated with me, but not for the reason you might expect. So here we go. Okay. In the 80s, there were two guys who really embodied the, the grossness, the oiliness, the nastiness of Wall Street. Mm. And um, their names were, okay, that's your engagement question. Do you know? Ivan Boski and Michael Milken? Yes! Yay! You win a car! <laughs> um so these two ne'er-do-wells are really the model for for a lot of what we think of as 80s corruption. Mm -hmm. Ivan Boski was 
convicted of insider trading for insider trading and eventually did go to a federal prison that was actually, I was interested to know that the name of it was something federal prison camp. And I was like, uh, not wrong, not far off. I'm sure he, he didn't he play tennis. Yeah, I was just going to say he was playing tennis while he was in in the clink. But part of his plea bargain, which got his sentence down to like two years from something really huge, was that he had to rat. He had to rat mm. on other Wall Street guys who were in the crosshairs of the ever present. The ever disgusting district attorney <gasps> named Rudolph Giuliani. Exactly. I'm so good today. You're on. You've been paying attention. <laughs> so Rudy Giuliani had a real bee in his bonnet about the shenanigans on Wall Street because you know what? I can't say that I agree with anything that Giuliani has ever done, but he wasn't wrong about this. Yeah. So insider trading, uh, for those who don't know what it is, is also what Martha Stewart went to prison for. It's when you are involved in a company, you're on the board, like you have inside information that the public does not have. And there's about to be some activity with the company that would let the people who have shares make a lot of money. Insider trading is giving people who are not in the know that information so they can cash in before the general public is is aware. And that's a big no-no. That's Boski. He uh, had a lot of people he could rat on, but the most high profile guy to go down was Michael Milken. And Michael Milken, his thing was he was the king of the junk bonds. And junk bonds are not that diff- – at first, I, I was like reading everything I could possibly find to understand this because finance is not my bag, man. Mm. It's just not my thing. Mine I have other talents. So Thank I was you. trying to understand this. And the essence of junk bonds, and I'm sure that someone – I hope someone corrects me about this. But what I was able to glean is that junk bonds are buying bonds from companies that are really bad risks. Okay. And you, because they're so bad, you buy them for a very, very small amount of money. And then when the time comes for them to give you the money back, you basically, it's, it's usury. You have this incredibly high interest that they have to pay back. So he was giving his investors. So Michael Milken was bringing people in to buy these junk bonds that he was recommending. And, um, he was giving them a hundred percent. They were doubling their money. Oh, wow. Which is crazy. Like anyone knows, like that's, that's, that's like Bernie Madoff, how like the percentage increase right. that he was offering people was a huge red flag, but people just want to believe, which is why Michael Milken is really interesting. He's a great example of, I'm going to tell you something that's utter bullshit, but it's so good. And I have such a strong network that will vouch for me that you're going to believe it and you're going to do it and you're not going to do any due diligence. You're just going to follow me like a lemming. Right. So he was doing that. And he was also in uh, some pretty shady mer- mergers. I was going to say murders and acquisitions. <laughs> mergers and acquisitions. Um, so he was breaking up companies, selling off the pieces mm-hmm. and to great disadvantage of the people who owned the companies, just corporate Raider, pirate. Mm-hmm. Boski dropped a dime on him and he was a big 
get for Rudy. And he got him under, which oh, I, I love this, the same act that mobsters would get mm. uh, nabbed with, which is the RICO Act. Right. It's racketeering, organized crime. So Milken is another one who managed to get his sentence down. And Milken, just to make things What even- did he do? Ivan Boski got his sentence down by ratting on Michael Milken, and Michael Milken got his sentence down by... He paid exorbitant fines. Okay. He was fined like a total of something like a billion dollars. Good Lord. Like something completely nuts. He had to repay uh, the company that he worked for. He had to repay the people who lost money because of him. Like he was just... So he paid, I guess, sufficiently. Mm -hmm. I don't know. And you know how I've talked in the past about my temp jobs and the guys who were running around doing blow in the office with their slick back hair trying to be Gordon Gecko and all of that. They were a joke. Like they were, they were nothings. They were just doing like LARP. They were live action role playing (laughs) in their jobs. Um, The real, the real movers and shakers were these dirt bags. I was thinking about it and I was like, why do I care at this moment? You know, I'm the pop culture person. Why do I care? And then I realized these two knuckleheads, their their personas allowed for fantastic characters to be created in film. Their mis- their crimes and misdemeanors and the way they dressed and the way they behaved, they became some of the great movie villains of the 80s. Mm. I was thinking, obviously, about Wall Street and right. the greed is good thing. You know, for those who are not familiar with it, you know, Michael Douglas plays an incredibly unscrupulous traitor and he's doing everything that would get Rudy to put him in prison. And his motto is greed is good. And he gets a young Charlie Sheen to do some really morally questionable stuff. And then, you know, Charlie has to make a decision about his life. Okay. But the greased back hair and yes. all of that, that, you know, the, the look that we know from American Psycho. Yes. That's from that. And then I was thinking, pretty woman. And I was like, mm. you know, I remembered that. <gasps> oh. Yes. So there's the character Vivian played by um, Julia Roberts. And, you know, she's emotionally and spiritually rehabilitating Richard Gere's character. And he she asks him, what do you do? And he says in a really offhand way towards the beginning of the film, well, I break companies up and then I sell off the pieces. And she's like, isn't that bad? And he's like, (laughs) no, it's, you know, blah, 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 blah. And to make him likable and make this romance that's completely, by the way, despicable. And we're going to have a whole episode on despicable themes of the 80s movies (laughs) that we're supposed to love. Um, Jason Alexander, yes, who is that's his lawyer, what I was going to say. stands in as the baddie. And Such a bad guy. The, so you know, gross. Ethically, not even ambiguous, but just flat out bad stuff that Richard Gere's character should Kind of rapey. Been. Well, and then he tries to rape yeah. Julie Roberts. And of course, he's like, but she's a prostitute. And even, even Richard Gere in the 80s, his character, let's say Edward. I can't believe I remembered his name. Edward. He, uh, he was like, yeah, rape's rape. Sorry. Jason Alexander, and then beats him to a pulp. So mm. that's nice. Mm. But there's Pretty Woman. And then I thought about our favorite movie. I'm going to give you a hint. Oh. Let the Rivers Run. Working Girl. Yes. It is my favorite movie. It is. It's one of the greatest movies 
ever. I don't know if you remember this, but at the beginning, you know, she's working at some trade or some, yeah. and I didn't remember that she was a temp. I looked into it because she calls the agency that had placed her when she gets booted out, but she gets booted out because she gets set up as a ment for a mentorship with Bob from Arbitrage. Arbitrage, another nasty 80s, you know, financial doodah, look it up. And who plays Bob, but Kevin Spacey. He was verbal from mm -hmm. The Usual Suspects, as we know. He was yeah. also the defendant in a Me Too <laughs> uh, trial and apparently diddled a whole bunch of boys. Bad, bad Kevin. Anyway, so she encounters this and she's like, fuck this. And she gets, we think she's going to do very well because she gets placed with a woman, Sigourney Weaver. Right. And the moral of mm. this movie, I realized, was kill or be killed. It's not just, oh, you know, she's making it and through grit and whatever. She is lying and stealing her way through the movie. Oh, that is true. She is, isn't she? She is lying and stealing. Eek. And she is lying and stealing <laughs> from some very creepy people, most notably Sigourney Weaver's character. The point is the only way she can get ahead is if she does this. And it raises an interesting question. I mean, she's pretending to be someone. She steals her appointment book. Right. But she does have authentically good ideas. Right. And but Sigourney she, Weaver tries to steal her right, ideas. That's at the end. She begins with, there's no other way I'm going to get in unless I take over the, the persona of this person. Right. Because she didn't go to a fancy school. I love how you are still... Um, excusing her. I'm not saying that there isn't a good conclusion to all of this, but she she's not spotless. No, I, okay. 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 And um, she's got moxie. And, and what I think is really interesting is that it's sort of a great commentary on being a woman in the work world, because it was either get fucked over or literally fucked in the back of mm. a limousine by Kevin Spacey, or fuck someone else over. And she did. She did what she had to do, to your point. But that whole world, the world of money that she wanted to belong to was nasty. Yeah. And um, and yes, yes, she does actually have the good idea. But at the end of the movie, do you remember? Because again, like I, I watched it and I was like, oh, I love this so much. And like, you know, it opens, the movie opens and it's so glorious with that Carly Simon song playing and the city looks gorgeous Staten and Island glittering ferry. and she's on the ferry with all of the big hair people but the city looks amazing and you're on the water and at the very end when she makes it she's in her office and the camera pans out and she's just a tiny little worker bee in her little cell in the little in the big hive working for more money for Owen Trask. <laughs> and I was like, this is so dark. Oh my God. But that's what success, that's, that's how success was defined in that exactly. period of time. That's what it that was like. a happy ending. It was a Absolutely. very, very happy ending. Although who knows, maybe Mike Nichols was really making a very big point as the director. Maybe he was slipping that in. Mm. But yeah, I mean, I cheered it forever it wasn't until you know i was like i'll do boski and milken right. that i was like wait a minute 
So Jessica, it is interesting. I'm still kind of absorbing what you were just talking about and how, I mean, interestingly, neither of us were seduced by the world of finance, even though that was such a strong value system in the 80s. I don't think that our DNA allowed for that. I think it's that profound for us. It was, it was just, and, and you and I also have a really high douchebag meter <laughs> Yeah, and our true. ability to handle those types is really I low. Mean, maybe that's also why we didn't join cults. Our unexpected tie in today could either be cults come in a lot of shapes and sizes mm-hmm. and it could be wanting someone to run your life or it could be thinking that you're going to run someone else's life. But in fact, your life is being run by the money machine. Mm. So you've, you've joined the cult of dark. money. Yes. Yes. I can, I can go dark, yo. Yeah. And people really, really want to belong to something. Hmm. And, you know, the personas that came out of the 80s Wall Street scene were really seductive. And if you could be in that club, it's like rushing the best fraternity for a certain kind of person. So I think that is a very appropriate tie in Jessica. And the other thing is, I mean, on that point, I remember vividly when I went to law school, and I met a lot of the specifically the guys who were entering law school with me in 93 they had no idea what they wanted to do with their lives. And I had this flash, I will never forget it. And I absolutely put it to myself exactly like this. These people are here to buy a personality. Mm. And that's what I feel about, you know, the, the finance people from back then, I'm not going to make any cast any aspersions about them now. But back then, it was like, it was a ready made kit to have this, this persona. And that's not unlike being in a cult. It's mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. this homogenized belief system and look and and following one goal. Mm-hmm. You did it. You tied it up. I'm very deep. 